Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr, and today's topic is remembering the Holocaust. Holocaust means sacrifice by fire, but when we use this Greek word today, it's to refer to what's also called the Shoah, the genocide of some six million Jews exterminated with millions of other desirable groups by Hitler's Nazi regime in Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. The Holocaust was certainly one of the most terrible crimes ever committed and was motivated by squalid and ignorant race theories which had become official Nazi doctrine in Hitler's Germany. Millions were displaced, incarcerated, enslaved and murdered in an industrial process. But our subject today is not the Holocaust, but its memory. There were few enough survivors of the death camps and very few are alive today 70 years after the end of the Second World War. People often say the Holocaust should never be forgotten, but we ask, how can it be, and how should it be remembered, and why? What are the institutions that commemorate and memorialise it? What does the memory of the Holocaust mean to Jews and to Gentiles in the 21st century? I'm joined today by Professor Glenn Timmermans of Macau University, who has a scholarly interest in Holocaust studies, and by Simon Goldberg, who's Director of Education at the Hong Kong Holocaust and Tolerance Centre. So first, I have to ask you, Simon, um, tell us about the Hong Kong Holocaust and Tolerance Centre. What does it do? Absolutely. The centre promotes Holocaust and genocide awareness in this part of the world, Southeast Asia. Practically, this means that we provide spaces for teachers to develop curricula and lesson plans on the subject matter. Mm-hmm. We engage students in uh, workshops, uh, film screenings and discussions, and also for members of the general public, providing them platforms on which to reflect on issues related to genocide uh, by promoting, for example, exhibitions. We also recently hosted, uh, in 2015, to mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day, we hosted an American World War II veteran who was actually one of the liberators of the Buchenwald concentration camp in 1945, uh, Sergeant Rick Carrier, and he actually spoke to 2,500 students over the course of uh, 10 days. So he gave so, talks ab- about his experience? About, of- ab- yes, sharing his firsthand account of, uh, li- of the liberation of Buchenwald with uh, mm-hmm. secondary school students mostly. Okay. So that's an example of the types of opportunities we want to generate. Can people just come into your center, or do you go out to schools and so on? It's mostly going out to schools. We have a resource center that we're now developing with a mm-hmm. library. Um, so scholars, members of the general public are invited uh, into the resource center. We sometimes host school groups there. Uh, but most of the time, uh, it's collaborative efforts with uh, schools, teachers, um, and exhibitions such as the ones I mentioned. Okay. Well, <clears throat> perhaps we'll have a chance to talk more about yeah. the center Great. later. But I want to uh, turn to Glenn now for a, for a more general question about genocide. I used the word genocide in my introduction just now, but we have to remember, of course, the Holocaust is only one of a number of attempted modern genocides. The Armenian genocide at the beginning of the 20th century, the Rwandan towards the end. Um, How can we understand genocide? Well, genocide itself is is actually a modern concept. Genocides, of course, go back. The Bible, unfortunately, is full of them. As is as is history generally, uh, but the, the the actual concept of word genocide was only coined in 1943 by a Polish Jew, Raphael Lemkin, largely 
in response to the Armenian genocide in 1915. And then, of course, his own experiences. Uh, he, he escaped from Poland, was in the United States, and his family was wiped out in the Holocaust. Okay, so genocide is actually a legal concept as defined by the United Nations in 1948, which is very specific in what is included. And it really means the extermination or the attempted extermination of a group with singular identity. So it could be Jews, Armenians, but equally it could be women, I suppose. It could be people of a certain religious group. Mm. Uh, so genocide encapsulates different ideas of group identity by, by which people are identified and then targeted for extermination. Even though genocide, the legal concept, doesn't necessarily include extermination. It could be simply depriving people of their way of life, their culture, which would eventually lead to their loss of identity. But in more specific response to your question, I think... Uh, well, first, how do we understand genocides? Well, this is, this is an interesting topic in that in Rwanda in 1994, shamefully, uh, many governments, particularly the United States, deliberately did not use the word genocide because have, had they done so, the United Nations would have been obliged to invoke the convention and step in to stop it. And so the word was avoided deliberately by the US and other governments so that would not happen. Uh, so if you don't call it a genocide... Then the UN is not obliged... You don't treat it... The U, and the UN is not obliged to... Mm. Do anything it, about it's it. also a definitional problem because genocide in whole or in part, according to the convention, and so what actually constitutes a part of a people mm. is, is something that has been uh, debated for many years since the convention had been passed, right? Sort of what's the shift between mass murder or war crimes mm. into the arena of genocide? And that's actually been used as a defense by many countries who have failed to intervene uh, over the last few decades. But in terms of the Holocaust, what I'd like to say in terms of its, gen its, its genocidal aspects, some people, some people might object, but many would, would argue that the, while all genocides are equal, I mean, all, uh, death is equal, um, what makes the Holocaust unusual is the extent of it, in that the Jews were targeted for total murder. Men, women, children. If you look at Rwanda, the killing was within Rwanda. There was never an attempt to kill the Tutsis in Burundi. Uh, in Armenia, there was never an attempt to kill those Armenians living perhaps in Russian territory elsewhere. Whereas Nazi Germany sought to kill every single Jewish male female, old woman, young, young male, child. And, and if you were Jewish, you were targeted for killing. And it was the extent of the genocide in Europe. You know, from, the, from Copenhagen <clears throat> down to Corfu, uh, right. all of Europe. And even, you know, even in Britain, the Channel Islands, the Jews on the Channel Islands, the only part of Britain occupied, were sent to the camps. And that <clears throat> attempted genocide was enabled by the fact of the war and the fact that, that Germany had invaded Many territories Many where territories. Jews resided. And, and, in, and, and in those countries which it had not invaded, where it had allies, it managed to persuade its allies. Yes. In, 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 in Bulgaria, the Bulgarians didn't send their own Jews, but the Bulgarians sent the Macedonian Jews. They occupied Macedonia. Uh, the Romanians have a very tricky uh, story there. Romania was an ally of Germany. Uh, so, yes, they were on, on, on occasion able to persuade. And we know the Jews who took refuge in Shanghai... Uh, there was an attempt on the part of the Germans to persuade the Japanese 
Mm. to do away with those Jews, but the Japanese did not. Uh, but there was an attempt even to go as far as the Jews in Shanghai. Okay, let's start to focus in on the question of, of memory, which is yeah. our topic. Um, Simon, I want to ask you about personal testimony. In, in a sense, this is the most immediate kind of memory. Right. The memories of people who had experience of or whose family members were involved in the in the Holocaust. There's quite a large archive of this, is there not? A tremendous archive. The, the earliest recordings that we have were uh, conducted by a man by the name of David Boder, Latvian-born, who came in 1946 to visit the displaced persons camps uh, in Europe after the Holocaust, and he interviewed over 100 Holocaust survivors, essentially immediately after the war. Taking an audio record or writing? Yes, an audio record that today can be accessed actually Mm -hmm. online. Uh Um, But if you look, for example, at the development of Holocaust memory in Israel, in the early years there was really a reluctance to deal with the subject of the Holocaust. There was, quote-unquote, a conspiracy of silence, as some scholars have termed termed it, because Holocaust survivors represented the weak diaspora, right, that was really antithetical to what the new Israel was uh, was attempting to to capture uh, in its independence in in its early years, and so there really was a reluctance until the Eichmann trial, the capture of Adolf Eichmann, one of the main architects of the Final Solution. This um, is in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixty, and he was tried in nineteen sixty one, <clears throat> and that was really the first opportunity for Holocaust survivors to get up on the on the witness stand and to mm-hmm. share their really highly individualized personal accounts, and that's when. You know, we sort of move from an abstraction of there's a Holocaust story to here we have individuals who went through the various stages of persecution and murder in the following ways. And people really started to relate to Holocaust survivors in Israel in the 1960s. In in some cases, though, isn't it right that survivors were very reluctant or even unable to share their memories? Absolutely. And that, and that's really one of the central challenges even today when thinking about Holocaust education. Survivors writing in memoirs, how do we communicate this experience, which was completely unprecedented. We ourselves lack words with which to describe the events of the Holocaust. How possibly then can we communicate its magnitude? Can we communicate the many different types of sufferings? We often focus on the physical sufferings, right? Of course, the gas chambers, Mm -hmm. the most visceral representation of suffering during the Holocaust. But psychologically, what survivors endured was uh, really unspeakable to many. Um, and this remains the challenge, and certainly looking forward yeah, to a world in which there are no Holocaust survivors left to tell their stories, that's extremely disturbing um, and challenging from an educational point of view. And, it's, and it certainly seems that many survivors who would not speak previously as they grow older, uh, perhaps because they know their time is, is, is ending, and perhaps because they've raised their own children and are going to speak to their grandchildren, as people get older, they seem to be talking more. So the long silence in the 50s, 60s and 70s, uh, now this tremendous work has been done and goes on with the Shoah Foundation at the University of Southern California, uh, funded by Steven Spielberg, which is probably the main repository of, of testimony. This is to, to build up the, the archives. Yeah, where with, with pretty much they try to reach every single survivor they could find anywhere in the world to get each and every testimony. But there's the fortune of archive at Yale, which started much earlier. Yad Vashem in Israel, the main Holocaust museum, has its own uh, testimony project. So there are numerous recordings of... Obviously, many survivors have been interviewed by all of these institutions. But there has been an attempt, and is an ongoing attempt, that everybody's story should be... Because each story, 
we, we need to get away from the idea of the six million, which is faceless and nameless, mm-hmm. to individual stories, each one is, which is different. And Ayad Vashem, there's a recent project now to actually go from one community to another in Israel and actually collect, ask people to bring over personal artifacts mm. that they're still carrying with them, right? Because there is a recognition that we're now at this juncture, right, from living memory to historical memory. And there's really been a nationwide call on uh, survivors, on the families of survivors to come forward and to donate whatever whatever artifacts, documentation that they have that could be used not only at Yad Vashem, but actually throughout the world. How do you, here's a question, how do you listen to a Holocaust testimony? Supposing you, Simon, you must have listened to many on, on yeah. tape, perhaps you've, you've met particular people who've um, went through the Holocaust. What's it like to listen to it? How, what does it do to you? Well, it brings the, it brings the memory, it brings the history alive, right? And and this this is why it's going to be such a loss because when we're educating about the Holocaust, there's no replacement for firsthand testimony, mm. and it's not even the story that's told because you can read that story in a memoir, um, you can read that story in a diary, but when a survivor is up there, it's actually mostly through the nonverbal reactions that they have when they're recalling, for example, the separation from their families, um, when they're recalling uh, the experience of deportation during the Holocaust. There's a lot of silence that's involved there, and it's actually through that silence that you feel um, the impact of, of, of the narrative, and that's uh, irreplaceable, unfortunately. Um, I want to come back to ask you more about narrative testimony in a moment, but first of all, a question about photographs, mm. because when the camps were first, I suppose, liberated is, is the word, uh, the most striking thing that came out of that, I understand, was photographs published in the press of um, what had happened in the camps, the, the, the terrible sufferings of those who had survived and also those who had died. Say some, I, I'm interested here in the role of photography in relation to memory, right. actually. Well, I think first and foremost, photography has an evidential function, right? Here yeah. we're documenting <clears throat> the event. And actually when General Dwight Eisenhower, the American general, visited the Nazi concentration camps shortly after they were liberated. Uh, He made it a point, actually, to physically be present and to tour the concentration camps. And he ordered soldiers to take as many photographs as possible because Mm. he foresaw the day that someone would come around and they would charge this to mere propaganda. He foresaw the tendency to deny an event that was unthinkable beforehand. And and so first and foremost, photography is a way to... Uh, combat denial. Yeah. Um, it's a way to communicate the full impact of what actually took place. But I'd say something more, which is that photography has um, an empathetic uh, quality to it, right? There's often a tendency, Glenn mentioned this before, to deal with large numbers, millions of people that had been uh, impacted by the Holocaust. We have to move away, uh, I think, from that tendency to talk uh, about large numbers of people being affected. And, and, and and substitute that with the stories of individuals. And I think photography, photographing individual people away from the mass, um, giving them a sense of humanity and individuality, is a way also in the classroom to establish a sense of empathy, right? This is a Mm -hmm. person who lived a life who has a story to tell. Even before liberation, I mean, the most iconic Holocaust photograph is the little boy with his hands raised after the Warsaw Ghetto yeah. Uprising. That is perhaps the iconic Holocaust photograph. That, that is 
two years before liberation. Mm. No one knows who that little boy was. Various people have claimed to be him. But no one has actually proven to be him. He almost certainly died shortly afterwards in the camps. And there, there you have the image of the child in the ruins of the Warsaw Ghetto. And that is such a powerful photograph. But there's also a problematic aspect to that photograph, right? Because we're looking at that child through the lens of the of perpetrator. The yeah, of, of we're the looking Germans. at it through the Nazis' point of view. Yeah. And Susan Sontag actually has said that this is a way in which we re-victimize the victims. Yeah. They die a second death because we're still in the, in the perpetrator's shoes. And that's actually the challenge when we're mediating photographs from, uh, from the time. And it's, it's a great it's, challenge because how does one, when you go to a museum like Yad Vashem or United States Holocaust Memorial, you see photographs of dead, naked people. Right. And in some ways, by doing that, we are intruding on their dignity. They are being exposed there. For the last 40 to 70 years, this photograph of piles of corpses, and we are, in, in a sense, re-victimizing them by, by allowing their pictures to be used. It's, it's a dilemma. I mean, obviously, the photographs are terribly important it, to teach at the it, same it, time. It's, we, it, it's an insoluble dilemma, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you can't say, let's put the photographs away and never, never look at them again. But when you produce them, you, you're, you're running the risk of indeed putting yourself in, in that position. And that's what makes Claude Lanzmann's very famous, uh, he won't call it a documentary, but Shoah, his nine-and-a-half-hour documentary meditation on the Holocaust, mm. is that he refuses to use a single historical photograph or he uses no footage at all, uh, precisely as a way of avoiding that very problem. Um, so there have been attempts to deal with that in a literary, in, in how one represents the Holocaust. That's really but becomes, though, the task of the educator, right? That's the moral responsibility uh, and the educational imperative in the classroom, which is also, you know, we focus on the perpetrator so much, but it's to tell this history from the perspective of victims, right? To tell subjective individual stories of what people endured. Um, and certainly with photographs, that's the task. Okay, Let, let's move out a little bit from... Uh, individual spoken yeah. memorial testimony and f photographs of the camps and so on um, to a, a literature of the Holocaust. Yeah. I'm, I put this question to you, Glenn. I mean, there, there is, people teach courses in the literature of the Holocaust. You, you may do so yourself. Mm. Is it a genre? It has become a genre, and it's, it's an interesting genre because it, it falls into various parts. For instance... I do teach a course, I teach a master's course on this, and there is an abundance of literature which is written by the survivors, or in some cases by the victims, uh, people who died. The most famous is obviously Anne Frank. I mean, she died, but her, her diary survived. And there are many, many diaries uh, and letters and poems which are written in the ghettos, in the camps, which in one way or another have survived. So there is the literature of first-hand memoir of creative work such as poetry. And then there is the later literature written by survivors reflecting back, of whom the most famous would be Elie Wiesel's Night and Premier Levy's If This Is a Man, perhaps the two most famous of those works. And these, I think... These are memoirs. These are, these are memoirs with a slightly novelistic twist. I mean, mm. Night is, is a mixture. It's a very heavily edited memoir um, in which clearly the, the Wiesel is focusing on particular ideas in his memory, in his memoir, to, co to focus on one or two aspects of that, of course. And I think that itself is uncontroversial. It's when we get to contemporary writers 
who have no connection with the Holocaust, who are not descendants of Holocaust survivors, that it can stray into areas which make some people uncomfortable. Uh, D.M. Thomas, most famously or infamously in White Hotel, rather sexualizes the Holocaust. Um, Martin Amos has written two Holocaust novels. And this, there's a whole debate around that. The Martin Amos line, which has some validity, is that once the survivors are dead, if we don't write novels about it, it will be forgotten. I think this is curious. The way you talk about this, it's almost as if you, well, it is as if, you feel that there's a difference between those people who write about the Holocaust who have some kind of right mm. to write about it, who either been through it or had relatives or, or, or whatever, um, as opposed to someone like Martin Amos, as it might be, or D.M. Thomas, who don't have a right to write about it. Is that what you're saying? There is the question of authenticity, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh, and again, I, I realise it is a very tricky problem because I can't think of any other historical incident which is off limits in the same way as the Holocaust is. Possibly, I don't know, but I mean, possibly something like the Nanjing Massacre for Chinese writers, maybe the Rwandan Mm. genocide for Rwandan writers, I don't know. But certainly within, perhaps once the last of the survivors is gone, then perhaps there'll be a freeing up of how we write about it. Then we might be able to have novels about the Holocaust in the way that we have novels about the Thirty Years' War. Mm. Mm. Well, the question is, how do we speak and write about the Holocaust in a way that doesn't dilute everything that it is, right? That's been the, the central challenge. What is the role in fiction in narrating the Holocaust? What or are the film. limits of representation? Or, or film. film, by the way, absolutely. The film has certainly been maybe the first point of contact for, uh, I would say in this part of the world, certainly it's been the first point of contact, uh, contact many recognizing Schindler's List um, as a, the classic representation of, of the Holocaust, even though many parts of it are not necessarily the experience of the victims. I mean, this goes back to the earlier point yeah. of discussion. Uh, yeah. An important part of the meaning of Schindler's List was that Steven Spielberg, the director, was Jewish. Yeah. It might have, would you have felt differently about it had he not been? Um, I think yes. I, I think yes. I think the, I think his reception would have been different. I really mm. do. Polanski as well, the pianist. Polanski is Jewish. Polanski yeah. himself is a survivor. He was a child in the, in the Krakow ghetto. Um, it adds, it, it allows a certain authenticity, which I think when non, not necessarily Jewish, but people with a link to the Holocaust are doing this, there's always a, a fear of exploitation, of sensation, sensationalizing it. And the question about literature of the Holocaust is the same as the, about film of the Holocaust, is how do you represent what we believe to be unrepresentable? How do you write about something which is almost impossible to write about. and I think Schindler's List is a very important film uh, because it's made so many people aware of the Holocaust, though I think there are a lot of problems with the film, massive problems with the film, but I think it works because it, it generates an awareness. Uh, I think The Pianist is fantastic, and because everything is seen only from the point of view of Vladimir uh, Spielmann, I think the film works very well because it isn't a filmmaker trying to interpret what it might have been like on a train 
And most most filmmakers would, even today, would avoid the gas chamber. He, that is somewhere most filmmakers will not enter the gas chamber. And the pianist is also not trying to bring closure to the event, right? One of the main critiques of Schindler's List has been sort of this redemptive angle at the end, right, where the Jews are liberated, the day, they then make their way to the land of Israel, right? There is a song in the background that makes you feel uh, yeah. a sense of comfort and relief. A narrative end, and if you actually think back to Lanzmann's Shoah, which is nine hours long, what he does mm. so well is that he's constantly keeping you disrupted, right? He's constantly moving from one person's testimony to another's. He's constantly moving from one ghetto or site of the Holocaust to the next, and you're never fully at ease, right? And the result of that is that you're still thinking about the film a week later. You're, you're disturbed by the film. And that's what we need also educationally, right? We can't fall into a kind of uh, complacency uh, when it comes to thinking about the issues of the Holocaust. Is a writer of history under the same kind of constraints that you were talking about for filmmakers and so on? For example, not allowing, you were saying it's a mistake to allow a kind of redemptive sort of happy ending to the mm. story. Well, I think the historian... Uh, runs the risk of falling into the same trap, right? Even if the task is historical reconstruction, you're always approaching the subject matter from your own perspective. You're bringing your own bias to the material, and it's uh, it's still a, a great challenge. Over many decades, there's been an overwhelming focus on anti-Semitism as the primary motivation behind the Nazi genocidal project. And it's only in recent years, I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been somewhat of a move away from anti-Semitism, not because anti-Semitism didn't play a primary role in, in driving the genocidal project, um, but because scholars have done a better job of shift of displacing their emotions and looking more carefully at uh, at scholarship from other perspectives right what was the role of uh, economics um in in the holocaust and the final solution what was the role of uh territorial and political aspirations that certain countries had. So yeah. this adds layers of complexity that I feel help us navigate the history of the Holocaust. Uh, and there is no redemption. And there is no redemption. Can either of you say something about the relation between memories of the Holocaust and the the identity of the state of Israel? So this is an odd way to put it. Glenn, can you ever go it's, at that? It's hugely complicated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> many people would say Israel was, Israel was born out of the ashes yes. of the Holocaust. I would strongly disagree with that. I think Israel was born, was born despite the Holocaust. Uh, Jews started going back to the Promised Land in the 19th century, the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah. The Balfour Declaration in 1917, the Jews were promised a homeland in what was then Palestine. So Israel was going to happen. I think the Holocaust perhaps allowed it to happen more, more quickly when the United Nations vote was taken in November 1947. Perhaps some countries which would have abstained voted for, for the creation of the state. But I honestly believe that Israel would have happened despite the Holocaust. Perhaps so, but and still it, it is the case, isn't it, that the memory of the Holocaust has something to do with what it means to be today, Israeli. Yeah, today, it's central to, these, to Israeli identity. Yeah. Today it is a very clear part of, of, of Israeli Zionism that without the state of Israel, this would happen to Jews again. Mm -hmm. Israel is the only place in the world where Jews can be safe. And to be honest, it's rather difficult to argue against that. I mean, if you look at uh, anti-Semitism today in Europe, it's not that it's impossible for Jews to feel safe in 
places like France. Um, but anti-Semitism is still very much alive um, and presents uh, an existential threat to, to Jewish people. Uh, whereas Israel, right, one of the, the main ideas behind Israel, this, this is a place that will unconditionally accept you as a Jewish person. Um, but there's, of course, a balance there to be struck. I would like to go on talking about this for a long time. But unfortunately, we have finished up our time. So uh, many thanks to both of you, to Glenn Timmermans and to Simon Goldberg. And thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>